electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa. John Ford's going to be with us in just a bit. He is wrapping up a conversation with the FCC chair at the Paley Center for Media. And I'll bring us those highlights in a minute. In the meantime, today, Lyft, Take Two, Trip, all plummeting on the heels of their results. We're going to dive into the state of the consumer and discretionary spending on a day where the Dow hits its highest intraday level since August. Speaking of Take Two, Activision reporting. We're joined by Microsoft's head of gaming. Phil Spencer's with us in a few moments. And then B of A cutting its target for Apple. The analyst behind that call is going to join us to explain, D. We'll start, though, with continued pressure on consumer spending. Take two, Carl mentioned this, it is plummeting after slashing Q3 and its full-year outlook. Spending on mobile gaming hit particularly hard. Lyft also down big, user growth slowing, active rider growth. The slowest on record, those shares down 20%. Ouch. President John Zimmer pointing to weakness in delivery and takeout as consumers tighten their belts. And another example of a pullback, there's TripAdvisor. Some red here also. Management saying while people want to continue spending, they're thinking about how to adjust their plans. That stock down more than 20% also. Uh, Carl, I guess the question when we talk about these earnings, are they company specific or do they tell us something about the broader economy and consumer spending, airlines, hotels, Airbnb? No sign of a demand slowdown there. Lyft's problem, that's not demand either. It's execution and potentially losing market share. Very different tone that we heard from Uber about a week ago saying that demand is strong. They're still in sort of growth mode. They scaled back costs earlier. So I guess that's a question here. That consumer side of the economy, especially when it comes to services, does that remain strong? Yeah. On Lyft, I mean, the street's been all over their case. Here's uh, Bernstein. Investors are questioning why they're messing around with Uber's American-only cousin when they can just own the real thing, which may be eating their lunch stateside. Investors hate the sort of out-year stretch goals, especially in a bear market. It really is, at least in the ride-sharing business, D. It's about, it's about share, gain, and loss today. It's amazing how quickly that changed because Wall Street used to like Lyft based on the fact that it was more of a pure play. They focused on delivery. Uber's diversification has really diluted shareholders, um, but I think they appreciate Dara Khazar Shahi's execution. We should note, though, both of these companies talk a lot about that path to profitability. Still far from it in terms of any gap sense, Carl. Um, we're going to get into gaming as well. Mobile seems weak here, and that's another piece of consumer spending, but less on the services side, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, the Take-Two, I mean, the, the, booking, the, the booking guidance, the revenue guidance, uh, not exactly clean. They do blame FX and macro. Meanwhile, ATVI had much better results. But as you know, D, it's not really trading on the fundamentals now as they continue yep. to believe that deal will close before the end of Microsoft's fiscal year in June of next year. But that's really the trade there. Absolutely. Let's say I think John has wrapped up his talk, so let's get him on this. I know he watches the gaming space very quickly. Uh, John, we're going to get to your chat with the FCC commissioner or chairwoman, excuse me, in a bit. What did you make of these gaming earnings? 
Yeah, well, you know, you, you talked and, and covered uh, Take Two pretty well. I was interested that in the Activision Blizzard side, which from a stock perspective, maybe people are a little less interested in their overall results and the likelihood that Microsoft's gonna be able to purchase them. But when it comes to mobile gaming uh, on their side, of course, they've got the King business, mm -hmm. which includes Candy Crush. That did really well, actually. People still crushing candy 10 years in, so it's a little <laughs> bit of an outlier in the overall yeah. casual gaming, mobile gaming space. But there really is this question about as consumer spending slows down overall, how is that going to affect the in-game economies and how is that going to affect the in-game advertising market as we mm -hmm. see overall digital advertising kind of taking a dive? Yeah, and in the case of mobile, it's so easy to switch on and off that spend. Let's stick with gaming this morning. Um, as we've been talking about a mixed picture on the heels of those earnings, joining us now to dig through the numbers and consumer demand, Oppenheimer analyst Martin Yang. Martin, let's start where John just left off in terms of that mobile picture. I mean, King's Candy Crush doing well, but Zenga was a real sore spot for Take-Two. Yeah, so when you compare Zynga's very broad, diversified portfolio of mobile games to King's, the key difference is King really benefit from a very scaled audience, a very focused audience with a well-known brand. Zynga is the opposite. So when it comes to user acquisition and getting access to new users to retain a scaled audience, Zynga would run into much bigger trouble, uh, especially in current environment where Apple's ATT is putting headwinds mm -hmm. on everyone. So how does that deal look now? Um, in retrospect, is this something that Take-Two can turn around or did they overpay for Zenga? Are shareholders correct in not liking this deal from the beginning? I think there will be a quite a few quarters, if not a couple of years, where this deal will be perceived as uh, a, a deal done at a peak multiple, uh, mm -hmm. given um, the lack of recovery on mobile user acquisition effectiveness. So um, the the deal synergy or the value of the deals really comes from Zynga's ability to explore uh, Take-Two IPs, uh, trying to bring Rockstar and 2K's IPs into mobile and find success. And without that, uh, that, that deal will be perceived very negatively among investors. So Martin, is this an opportunity, this environment for Unity Iron Source, for example, or for AppLovin, which are trying to optimize that uh, mobile and gaming ecosystem is it an opportunity or is it a liability do people need them more because the overall revenue is down or is it going to just really squeeze them in this environment uh, especially for smaller developers they need someone like AppLovin. they need someone like unity more than ever because they need someone who can provide end-to-end -end service uh, not just from user acquisitions point of view but from you know any little things that help them to improve overall app performance, overall monetization uh, that will benefit them. And, uh, you know, overall, they will need to uh, look for a larger software providers, someone who can provide everything uh, from monetization to user acquisition to um, uh, add uh, automation and everything else. Martin, you said that um, Zenga may be seen as a deal done at peak valuation, but when you look at Take-Two now, does it look like an attractive target to you? And who do you think it would be attractive to, a Disney or a Netflix? Uh, if you try to, if you have the discipline to hold Take-Two for the next two years, um, uh, in other words, you will hold Take-Two uh, until it launches to GTA 6 sometime in the next few years. This is a good uh, entry point. Uh, but in the very near term, I believe the stock will go through some turbulence because there's still very much 
uh, uncertainty and negative headwinds on mobile into the first half of 2023. Uh, some more skepticism thrown into the mix on Activision uh, Microsoft this week. And I just wonder, given the multiple layers of, uh, of scrutiny it's undergoing on, on various continents, if you think that's a model for how regulators are going to view the overall space in the years ahead? Uh, for video game, particularly, uh, not likely for other deals because Activision is so much bigger than anyone else. Um, so if this deal doesn't go through, it doesn't really set a negative case for other potential uh, large M&As because Activision is so much bigger. Uh, some of the key franchises are so much more dominant uh, than other games. Opens the door for more M&A. Do you mean Activision Blizzard potentially doing M&A or a target for someone else? No, Activision, well, the, the top publishers like Activision, like EA and Take-Two, they're always on the lookout for new games. And that's a major source of innovation coming from the indie studios. And in fact, during the pandemic, when working from home becomes more prevalent, you do see a much higher number of indie studio formations. And that's where the big new ideas come from. Martin, appreciate that very much. A uh, lot to talk about. Maybe next time we'll talk about some of the chip channel clearing out in that vertical. But good to see you. Thanks. Thank you. We're going to come back to gaming in a moment. Let's get a quick check on shares of Block. Stock is moving higher today after Macquarie takes it to outperform, seeing an attractive buying opportunity. Thanks to that recent pullback, they also highlight strength in its cash app business, though they warn that the buy now, pay later story arc remains uncertain. The stock down 60 percent on the year, guys. This is a company that hasn't been afraid to dip into buy now, pay later crypto. And it's been punished by markets down 60 percent year to day. But we have to remember that it's done a pretty good job monetizing that cash app, which is still sort of at the core of what it does in a way that PayPal wasn't able to with Venmo, John. That's so true. And from the user perspective, those two apps and the experiences aren't that different. I mean, it's like, you know, I use it to tap into my checking or you know, debit account and, and, and pay people out. But the way it's actually structured on the back end, so important. So this is a time when investors, I think, have to really drill down into what management's plans are to structure these businesses and make sure the models work, kind of echoing back to what you and Carl were talking about earlier when it comes to Lyft versus Uber. And I would call DoorDash into there, too. It's not just are they in a hot area. It's does their model work? All right. Great. Well, turning yeah. back to gaming, our next guest says, uh, even with economic uncertainty ahead, history has shown gaming remains a good value for consumers, especially heading into the holiday retail season. Let's bring in Microsoft Gaming CEO Phil Spencer to discuss what he's seeing at Xbox. Phil, welcome. I would also throw in, I know there's not that much to say about Activision Blizzard specifically, but you guys bought ZeniMax for about, what, like $7 billion earlier, which is, you know, small change compared to some of the other moves that we've seen you make. But, you know, the environment has changed significantly since that transaction. How are you working to incorporate that and get the most out of it uh, as the economic winds shift? Yeah, it's, it's all about getting great games done. Uh, that's what we're working on with uh, our teams at ZeniMax. We've got two great games coming in 2023, Redfall and Starfield. Delivering great games for our customers across the platforms where they want to play is just a fundamental promise that we want to have at Xbox. So speaking of Xbox, 
uh, overall, the gaming business seems to be okay from a supply chain point of view. At least that's what we heard from AMD, which supplies uh, you guys as well as others. Um, what do you expect to see on the consumer front as consumer spending slows down? Is it the hit games that are gonna outperform in this environment? Is it having a broad portfolio that you think is gonna indicate who wins console-wise this holiday season? Well, hit games have proven to always be successful in our market. You're seeing that with Modern Warfare 2 right now. If you go back in the year, Elden Ring, like you have big, great games that reach a mass audience across all these platforms. They do really, really well. But it is also the back catalog or the tried and true hits that families have almost like become part of the family activity in the evenings. Gaming is, a, I think, a good value for the you know, dollar per hour that people spend in playing and that the back catalog tried and true hits, free to play games do really, really well right now. And you think about the Fortnites and the Rocket Leagues and Fall Guys, those kind of games also succeeding in the platform. Diversity of business model, whether it's subscription, free to play or retail, really just offers our customers a ton of choice. Hey, Phil, it's Deirdre. I wanted to ask you more about the developer side of things. And as you look to, you know, eventually operate an Xbox mobile store, what does that look like? Is it an open app store model, meaning that, you know, developers could be able to operate their own app stores within there, their own methods of payments? How do you think about that evolution? Yeah, I mean, we're early, early on in this transition, and there's obviously a lot of obstacles in front of us today that we have to work through on those mobile platforms. But I think the model we have on Windows is one to really learn from. You look at Windows, which is a large-scale platform, and creators can make decisions whether they want to go direct to their customers and deliver their storefront, use our own store capability, use their own payment system or our payment system. I think that diversity of choice for creators in the long run leads to more creative output better creator community and player community. But on the, mobile play, on the mobile platforms today, we just have a ton of work to get from where we are today to any viable choice for a customer. Bill, what happens to cloud gaming with Game Pass? Uh, Google kind of pulled back with Stadia, killed that. Do you accelerate more into that with less competition? Or do you maybe uh, ease off in spending money on that as the economy gets rougher? You know, we follow where our customers are. We've now had over 20 million people use our cloud game streaming platform. Uh, we have certain markets where most of our customers are actually playing on cloud. On the global scale of gaming, when you think of 3 billion people playing video games, obviously cloud gaming is a small percentage of that. But in running a tech business and entertainment business, we're always thinking about Horizon 1, what's happening now, Horizon 2, and Horizon 3. And we think about cloud as something that can be an important choice for creators and players. And we're, we're long on the capability, but it's, it's not a transformation we expect to see in the next three to five years. It's longer out before a majority of people might be playing on cloud. Okay, so that sounds like kind of two things. You want to be there, but you don't necessarily want to spend a ton on it because you don't expect results uh, immediately. Let me throw mobile into the mix. We were just talking about this earlier. Uh, mixed bag, if you're looking at Take-Two's results, versus Activision Blizzard's results, which might end up being part of Microsoft's results before too long. Do you, um, do you value mobile because the, the player is definitely there, probably for the long term, even if the economics are not holding up right now? 
Yeah, like any at-scale business, what gaming's $200 billion top-line TAM right now, if you look at the CAGR over multiple years, obviously COVID and the everybody stuck at home and playing video games created some year-over-year -year anomalies for us. But if you look at the long-term trends, Microsoft, we're very obviously bullish on the category. And I think for our partners out there, whether it's Take-Two and what Strauss is doing, Activision, Electronic Arts, you know, those teams are focused on building great games, making sure they're delivering great content across all screens. I thought Strauss' acquisition of Zynga last year was a really smart move on his part to diversify his portfolio. EA's done some great things on mobile. People are playing across any screen that they have. And the biggest franchises in the world mm -hmm. exist across all of those screens. So if you're building a Minecraft like we are or Fortnite or a Call of Duty, you've got to make sure that those, those franchises show up on any screen that somebody wants to play on. And yeah, there'll be economic uncertainty in times where I think gaming can play a role, but the long-term trends for interactive entertainment for the generation that's coming up through, I think remain very, very strong. All right, Phil Spencer from Microsoft, head of gaming, thank you. Thank you. Still to come this hour, got an upgrade for Block, as we mentioned a couple moments ago, plus the highlights from John's conversation with the chair of the FCC. Dow session highs up 417, highest intraday level since the middle of August. Stay with us. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. It is time now for a gut check. Take a look at Global Foundries outperforming the broader chip sector in 2022. This morning, let's see, down about 6.5% after delivering, a, no, sorry, up 7.9% uh, after delivering a beat on the top and bottom lines in Q3. The street also liking the guide with earnings projections for the current quarter coming in above consensus. Revenue outlook falling in line with expectations, guys. Uh, that stock getting close, Carl, to up 8% at the moment. Yeah, not a bad day uh, for some in the uh, chip business, uh, John. In the meantime, turning to M&A, it's been a stagnant year, as you know, uh, consolidation a lot. Our next guest, though, does see some deal opportunities ahead, predicting investors will come off the sidelines for strong business models despite the broader volatility. Joining us here at Post 9 today, Union Square Advisors co-founder Ted Smith is back, and it's great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me again, Carl. So, so defensible business models right. means what exactly? It means profitability and growth in reasonable proportions with one another, right? We are going to see some slowdown in growth. That's inevitable given that volatility that you talked about in the general state of the economy. But what investors are telling both public and private companies are don't lose sight of that profitability. We're willing to sacrifice a little of the go-go growth for more profitability. Right. So they, you can look past a, a darker macro backdrop or, or not? Does, does the backdrop of the industry overall need, also need to be an ascension? We'd like to see it a little better yeah. than it is now, certainly. But I think once we have a feeling for where things are going to bottom out with the Fed, when we get a handle on inflation a little bit better, we think we're going to see that stability that's required to get more deals done. It's interesting you say that because today yields are lower. Uh, the San Francisco Fed had a piece out yesterday arguing that actually conditions are tighter than we may think. Right. There's a little bit of brewing talk about could there be peace talks with Russia? Could there be stimulus in China? Right. Could, what happens if all those things come together? What's, what's the upside, <laughs> the, the bull case on this? I think the bull case, first of all, I think it's going to take a while for the bull case to develop. I think we're still talking more about 
2023 than we are 2022 for certain. Um, but again, I think it's more about stability than a big bull case. It's about people understanding what companies are actually going to be able to do, how quickly they can grow in a normalized fashion into 2023 and beyond, showcasing those corporate profits. And, and corporate balance sheets from the acquirers are still quite strong. They've got a lot of cash to put to work, and they want to put it to work. Hey, Ted, it's Deirdre. Good morning. Good to see you. Um, so there's sort of been this disconnect between the potential acquirers and the targets. I mean, a lot of the software companies saw peak valuations, right, a year or so ago, and maybe a reluctance to be a target because they thought that they could get somewhere close to that. Is that coming down now? We've had a few bear market rallies, though, that may have given hope. Where do they settle? Do you think that there's more of an appetite for some of these software companies that have been sold off to be acquired? It's a great question, Deirdre. And I think the reality of it is we are starting to see some of that happen in boardrooms. Um, with a focus on not what was my valuation last week or last month, um, where was it a year ago, not so relevant. Um, so we're, we're, we're seeing that disconnect kind of narrowing, uh, certainly for public companies, to, you know, your mm -hmm. stock price today is your valuation today, but private companies as well are starting to fall more in line with the new valuation reality. At the same time, is it too late for some of them? We talk about certain technologies that have kind of become commoditized, like a Teladoc. Um, you know, it's easier for other bigger tech companies to have that kind of video product. Zoom, even some of these companies that look like great technologies a year ago, but kind of look like plug and plays at the moment. I think, look, there's in any market, up or down, there are going to be companies that are left behind. Um, I'm not prepared to say, you know, on, on either one of those cases, I don't think that's necessarily the case. But the reality of it is, particularly if you're Zoom, you've got a lot of you've got a lot, lot of firepower to continue to build out your business model. And we think that they will. But there are definitely going to be some folks who miss the window and they'll regret that. Um, the calculus for those who are selling is what? Uh, that valuations return to something approaching normal again or more reasonable? Or is it simply financing, it's, we're it's time. It's time. I think, I think that's the calculus. Yeah. We either need cash, so we need to raise capital. It's a very active private capital market today across both debt and equity. Um, and if you need to sell because you simply have no choice, then you have to accept the current valuation realities. I think what's different now than was a month ago, three months ago, people are starting to realize that the valuations of a year ago are not coming back soon. So you need to, fake, uh, to, to bake that into the calculus about when is it time to sell. Do we need to expect uh, longer closing schedules? Uh, the re more reception to scrutiny from regulators? Certainly longer closing schedules, just deals are taking longer to get done in general, so absolutely. I don't think the regulatory environment has played a significant role yet. Today is going to be an interesting I was going test to say, of that. Does anything change if, if, if the control changes? I think the, the argument is it gets easier, but we'll have to see what happens on the course of the day. It really, over the last two years, hasn't been nearly as bad as the worst case scenario. Uh, was forecast right. the last time we had the election. Given the way the year's gone and, and the way volume had dried up, did you expect to be presenting a case that was net bullish at this point? Uh, are you surprised by this? Well, in January, I certainly did. But by the time we got to June, I certainly didn't. So we've kind of gone through our own version of what we thought was going to happen. From a perspective of our business, a little less M&A, but a lot more financing activity right. for what we're doing. Right. Ted, I wish you would stay with us for a moment. We got some breaking news regarding crypto kind of involves M&A. Yeah. Uh, for that, let's get to uh, Kate Rooney, right, Dee? Yeah, and you know, there's a lot going on right now, so I'm grateful to have you on set. Um, we're reading tweets, potential acquisitions. Yeah. What do we know right now? So global exchange Binance, one of the biggest exchanges, if not the biggest exchange in the world, is looking to buy FTX.com. So this is the non-U.S. business 
of FTX. It's owned by Sam Bankman-Fried, separate from FTX U.S. It includes FTX Derivatives, which is uh, the Bahamas-based business here. Uh, and both CEOs of the exchanges tweeting about it this morning. They say it's a non-binding letter of intent. So the, they need to do some due diligence here. The deal hasn't closed. But CZ, the CEO of uh, Binance, tweeting that FTX, he says, this afternoon, FTX asked for our help. There is a significant liquidity crunch. He says, to protect users, we signed that non-binding LOI, intending to fully acquire FTX.com to help cover the liquidity crunch. We will be conducting due diligence, or DD, as he says, in the coming days. Sam Beckman-Fried also confirming that, says things have all come full circle. He says FTX.com's first and last investors are the same. We have now come to an agreement on a strategic transaction with Binance. Binance was one of FTX's first investors. We can talk about how we got here and how this drama is well, all played out. But. That's what I wanted to highlight, because very different tone from two of these major, let's call them the biggest players in crypto, yeah. right? At least two of the biggest players. There's been a feud going on. And the tone that we're getting from these tweets happening you know, mo- at, in the moment, yeah. SBF is saying things like, a huge thank you yeah. to CZ and Binance, where CZ is tweeting things like there is a significant liquidity crunch. Yeah. So someone's being a bit more generous to the other here. Yeah. Is this a case of Sam Bankman-Fried losing this feud that's emerged? You could argue that. And there are these two, I know he also says yeah, there have been reports that we've had this fraught relationship. That's really what it looks like. So yeah. uh, CZ had accused Sam Bankman-Fried of essentially lobbying behind others in the industry behind their backs, and especially Binance. This is a global offshore exchange. That was where this all started, was in D.C., and the idea that Sam Bankman-Fried had a seat at the table and, and may have been... closer to regulators. Exactly. So that was part of the issue in how this all stemmed. CZ over the weekend had tweeted essentially that it was divesting its holdings in FTX's mm-hmm. token that it owned. As part of it getting out of the last uh, equity round of FTX, it had this massive amount of FTT tokens. It offloaded that. It said it was going to divest that. That spooked the markets. So that's what we saw this morning with Bitcoin. The idea that um, he didn't say what these recent revelation, uh, revelations were, but Desk published an article saying that Alameda Research, which is another company yes. owned by Sam Bankman-Fried, had essentially more than 5 or $6 billion of FTT tokens on his balance sheet. It called into question the idea of this company being able to meet some of its uh, certain loan requirements and the balance sheet. So you've just seen the same fears we saw with crypto markets in the spring, yeah. now coming to roost with Sam Bankman-Fried. And then the, the big picture here is S, uh, SBF and FTX here were really the lenders of last resort, came in as these uh, yeah. kind of emergency loans and backstops for the industry. John's got a question for you. Hey, John. Yeah. Hey, Kate. You know I've been skeptical of this whole Sam Bankman-Fried white knight story from the beginning. It's just he wasn't showing his cards. Yeah. Is this essentially he was bluffing at the poker table? I mean, acting like he had a really great hand and he was going to rescue the whole crypto industry. And now he's having to fold. And, and everybody's just got to hope that now Binance and CZ, that he's the, the white knight. I mean, this looks like poker to me. Yeah, it's not clear now who would be the lender of last resort here. You know, there's no there's no Fed in crypto. So really, Sam Bankman fried had played this role as a backstop. He also hasn't closed some of the deals that he agreed to whether it's Voyager or BlockFi, those are sort of binding agreements. We don't know if those deals will still go through based on what we've heard. The question of was he bluffing or not, one of the things that people have called out is the relationship between Alameda and FTX. And that's part of the issue here and how this all sparked 
uh, is that those two companies, both owned by Sam Bankman-Fried, founded by Sam Bankman-Fried, the relationship, because they're both private, is unclear. We have seen the balance sheet of the audited financials of FTX of, as of last year, but there's so many holes and questions on the liabilities, how those two companies interact. And so the question, I, I, I can't say for sure if he was bluffing in terms of what cash he had on the balance sheet, but he tweeted a couple of days ago that they had enough cash to honor uh, customer withdrawals. This does seem like a bit of a crisis scenario if you're going to sell FTX.com and all of the offshore non-U.S. assets to one of your biggest competitors who has been really dunking on you for the last week or so. So I think the story is still playing out, but ironic based on the fact that Sam Beckman-Fried was the lender of last resort for these companies. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and also remains uncertain, given that uh, CZ tweets that they have the discretion to pull out from the deal uh, at any time. And that's, of course, with no terms disclosed. I don't know how comfortable you are discussing what's going on here, but uh, clearly things are fluid, at least in the crypto markets. Very much so. Um, obviously, there's a lot of details that are still going to need to emerge about exactly what's going on. But it does speak to that broader point that you were making before, Carl. Sometimes companies don't have a choice. Uh, even companies that have puffed their chest out and said everything is fine, sometimes they do need to find that lender or buyer of last resort. And I think that's what we're seeing right now play out in front of us. Uh, I, I just want to ask the guest. To me, the, the central question and problem here is we don't know in this crypto universe, in a lot of these cases, whether these people have the assets that they claim to have. You know, they're, they're uh, promising money to somebody, taking money from somebody else dealing in, in tokens that they made up, uh, but, but real investors have real money in the crypto markets believing that somebody who's rich enough is gonna bail this out. Isn't that a problem? I think it's a huge problem. And John, I think you just made the case for what, when, you know, Kate's point about there is no Fed in crypto. Um, the Fed has been, you know, in addition to all the other things they've gotten going on, very active in saying that they want to be part of this market. It needs to get regulated in ways that it's not today. And I think when you see things like what's going on today and investors expecting something to happen that they probably don't have a right to expect, that's exactly when you're going to see more regulation. Yeah, so Kate, let me turn this to you then. Um, you kind of outlined a little bit the background between Sam Bankman-Fried versus CZ in Washington. Yeah. Sam Bankman-Fried is becoming a lot closer. He has a seat at the table, whereas CZ's company, Binance, is actually subject to SEC and DOJ investigations. So what does this mean, do you think, for the future of crypto regulation? So here we are, day of the midterm. Sam Bankman-Fried has been one of the biggest and most active political yeah. donors in the U.S. And the question here, I mean, what happens to D.C.'s trust in Sam Bankman-Fried and the idea that he really was the one talking regulators through this, spending time in Washington through this crisis, and now he, I mean, it's too soon to tell how deep this goes, but does that erode trust in the U.S. in the crypto ecosystem in terms of getting more regulation, him having a seat at the table? And that's really where a lot of this, these issues started. His take on the DCCPA, which is the CFTC bill, and some of his stances on crypto in general have really pegged him on the other side of the entire industry. There's a lot of people that have been you know, battling with him pretty publicly. So he's gotten on the wrong side of... You mean the crypto natives? Yeah, the ones so that Aaron don't Voorhees, want that some of, of the early crypto evangelists have yeah. said, we don't agree with you. You're not the voice of the entire industry. So he's had that pushback on one side. It's unclear how regulators will respond to this now. And if it erodes any of the trust that he's built up is really a spokesperson for this industry. 
Meanwhile, as if that were not enough, a headline now crossing that EU antitrust regulators will open a full-scale investigation into Microsoft's bid for ATVI. Uh, they'll decide by March uh, whether or not that deal will go through. I guess one caveat would be large deals are going to get the look. They right? are. There's no Absolutely. question about that. Right. And, and particularly in the UK, which has been much more active in M&A regulation over the last couple of years than we'd seen in the, in the previous decade. All right. Uh, thank you for rolling with uh, the breaking news regarding crypto and overall M&A trends. It's always good to have you in. Thanks. Appreciate it very Appreciate much. Appreciate it, Carl. Uh, Dee? Um, so, Kate, at the middle of this, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but we started to see sort of the sell-off in the FTX token, yeah. FTT. I have a bunch of questions. Its yeah. market cap was about $3 billion, but... Alameda held five or six billion dollars worth of this coin. How big a role is that playing in this? And yeah. how much of that is more of the same, this really lack of transparency into these tokens? Who's burning them? Who's creating them? So FTX burns and creates these tokens as part of its appeal as an exchange. If you're an FTT holder, you get certain rights, um, certain advantages as a trader on that platform. And it was also seen as sort of a an equity tranche of getting access to FTX is obviously a private company, but retail investors saw this FTT token as a way to sort of get access and exposure, and it was one of the better performing tokens um, right. if you look at some of the smaller cap examples. But they, the relationship there is they mint it, they burn it, and then the big question in the conflict of interest here is that Alameda owns, like you said, billions of dollars there and is using it as much of its balance sheet. So they said about $5 billion worth right. of this token. The liquidity there is unclear. I mean, it, some people have made the comparison to the Celsius token and what happened there, the idea that a lot of their balance sheet is tied up into a token that they create and own. So it's, it's yeah. Okay. Let's get Sam Lesson on the phone right now. Uh, we have some more commentary on this. He's Slow Ventures partner and a crypto investor. Sam, thanks for joining us on short notice. What do you make of what's going on here? And Break down this comment, this tweet from CZ for us. There is a significant liquidity crunch. He's accusing FTX of a significant liquidity crunch. How does that happen? Well, well first, let me just say, like, what, this is the Wild West. I mean, I love <laughs> this. You know, if you talk about where, you know, great fortunes are made and lost, right, and the kind of the intersection of the most interesting technology and opportunities in the world with kind of the absolute, you know, wild, you know, hucksterisms of it and the intersection of this. I mean, you know, long gone are the days where there's land, you know, in the Western expansion to go explore, but this is crazy, and I, I love it. Uh, <laughs> it's my first take. I say that as, you know, an early, very large Solana holder that's obviously part of the story as well, because FTX has been a major part of the, of the Solana story to date. Look, I mean, you know, we've seen now, you know, waves of people trying to understand where value is in crypto. Um, and kind of where security is in crypto. And I think this is, you know, FTX is iconic. Uh, SBF has is, is done an incredible job. What I really see in this, honestly, big picture is, A, these are very competitive firms in a lot of ways. But as with any, you know, good ecosystem growing, you get to a certain point of maturity, where I call it like co-opetition, where these guys can both simultaneously deeply compete with each other, but they all have such vested interest overall in the ecosystem they'll help each other out as well. And I think that the reality is you look at, you know, Facebook, Google, a lot of these things, a lot of these big entities in an industry start out hyper-competitive, and they are hyper-competitive on some things. But as they mature, they figure out they can both compete and cooperate um, at the same time for the sake of an ecosystem and something exciting and new. That's so kind of how I look at it. 
are you saying this is a good thing? This is Sam Bankman-Fried and CZ cooperating would really, over the last few days, it has felt like the opposite. They're trying to kill each other. Um, so well, what is... Look, it's better than them not. Co- I'd say it's certainly better than them not cooperating and taking a whole ecosystem down with them. Right? Well, so okay, I, but <laughs> but Kate brought up this idea. I mean, F, um, Sam Bankman-Fried, excuse me, has been sort of this white knight. He's been talking to Washington. Yep. What does this do to his reputation? And could this hurt the crypto industry at large? As many, at least on the institutional side, are looking for more regulation. This feels like a swing back to sort of the evangelist side. You know, I, I just I, I think this is like with most things, you know, you have a breaking story, which, again, I love this stuff. This is wonderful from like a business narrative interest perspective. I think the, the fallout from this, I think, will take a little bit of time to understand. I mean, I agree that, you know, SBF has been a strong voice in Washington and kind of he his credibility, you know, if he needs a bailout. Right. So to speak, obviously gets knocked a little bit in this situation. Um you know, but I do think, again, like my big picture here is you go from a world, I think about the Internet, right, and the kind of world I grew up in, where you have the biggest, most iconic, most important platforms and exchanges that are all at one level trying to kill each other. But as they get mature, they realize they all need each other and also help each other out. And like, that's what I really see here is I think I look at this, yes, as actually a positive story in that the big players will support each other and keep each other, you know, in, in good place, even when they hit turbulence. Um, but look, I, I, on the flip side, Sam, to acknowledge your point, I do think you're right that, you know, the stronger these players are, the more they don't need each other, <laughs> the more credibility they have. <laughs> Sam, here's, I, I hear where you're coming from, and I think the spirit in which you say you love this, here's why I don't love it for the people at home, is I, I think a lot of people took these guys seriously when they said that crypto is the future, it's going to the moon, they have all this money, it's relatively stable, the unbelievers are are heretics and will be wiped from the face of the earth, but it looks like they were playing poker. And it looks like that classic situation where some people uh, are at the, the right point in the pyramid and they end up okay and the person at home ends up uh, holding the bag ends up the sucker. And I I sort of wonder, what does this do for the overall public's faith in the crypto ecosystem when Sam Bankman-Fried, who was recently on the front of websites and the cover of magazines as this white knight who's going to save crypto, now needs to be saved? Well, here's what I basically say. One, I think the idea, and I I hear your point. I think, you know, you'd obviously just be careful with this stuff. And in the Wild West, the Wild West is dangerous. Like, there's no question about that. You know, who should be playing and how it evolves is an interesting question. The way I look at this is, look, crypto is complicated, right, as an ecosystem. Not all things are equal. And in some cases, multiple things can be true at the same time, right? So there's a massive difference between Bitcoin and the FTX token. Now, it might be hard for retail investors to necessarily see that difference all the time, but at a fundamental level, there's a massive difference between those things, right, um, in terms of how you look at them. Look, any system that's supposed to be a decentralized future of the Internet system is not going to be reliant upon one or two um, individual humans. I mean, that's kind of contrary to the whole point, right? So, you know, I think we got to be careful with the narrative here about a single person in the history of crypto being the quote-unquote savior, not savior, etc. People can play big roles. They can be super helpful. But if crypto is viable, right, as an ecosystem, which I believe it is, and I think it'll be long-term very important, Right. Like we probably do have to move beyond the narrative as white knights, despite the fact the media loves it because you need a face for these things. 
right, to kind of tell the story. So, I don't know. It's a long-winded way of saying, like, look, I, I obviously feel for people who got hurt on this stuff or get hurt kind of as these things move around. You know, I, I certainly have lost a lot of wealth in the last year in crypto myself, right? So, I, you know, I get it on a bunch of different levels. I do think it takes a lot of sophistication to play well. But I do think at the same time, you can both say, as it was in the wild left, there's a lot of hucksterism, there's a lot of craziness, there's a lot of kind of volatility, and there's a lot of scams, like to be really clear, alongside a lot of deep innovation and really valuable stuff for the future, you know, as there was in the West. <laughs> Sam, I'm curious about, you know, you're framing it as the as industry players have each other's back in a sense, but the way that CZ frames this, it, it makes it sound like he knows his rival is is basically in the dust and he can step in at any time he or not depending on how he feels you know again i think we'll see how this plays out going forward but if cz is smart and he is smart right what he's got, you know he's got a lot at stake in this ecosystem being hyper successful and he's gonna he understands that this can't be reliant on a single firm or a single institution so as much as the narrative was you know it has been it's a great narrative from a media perspective of like so-and-so is the savior. They are crypto. You know, just as in an era, it was Mark Zuckerberg is social media, right? Like, I get the appeal. I think, you know, a smart player, as he is, recognizes the fact that that can't be how you build a trillion-dollar industry. It has to be collaborative. There have to be multiple winners, et cetera. That doesn't mean you can't have a big piece of the pie. Um, but, you know, I think if, 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 it's, if, if the story becomes, I have vanquished my last real rival enemy and I now control crypto. I mean, that's a story that's going to be long for disaster for him. Yeah, um, Sam, it's a, it's a dangerous ground that we keep treading over. There are plenty of people now, so Jack Dorsey saying only Elon can save Twitter. Um, speaking of social media, but please, Sam, stay yeah. with us. Let's bring in Moffat Nathanson's Lisa Ellis as well. She covers Coinbase. Lisa, um, what does this do this Binance FTX situation for faith in crypto in general? What's the message that you think investors in crypto should take from this and investors who don't have crypto uh, should take from this if they're thinking about getting into that ecosystem? Yeah, I'd say one couple of things that really highlights and maybe will bring to the fore for investors is that there is a very big distinction between the exchanges that have been operating in these sort of unregulated or sort of semi-regulated areas of this ecosystem and those that have been operating uh, with more, uh, you know, kind of discipline, the longer haul on the, on the regulated side, uh, like a Coinbase or some of its U.S. rivals, you know, like a Gemini or firms like that, because part of what will be driving some of this liquidity issue at FTX or, you know, is that, these exchanges are operating not necessarily with the same types of backstops and limits and restrictions that we are as consumers, I'd say, kind of a, take for granted or, you know, are accustomed to when we deal with, you know, the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ right day to day. And you sort of, I think it's easy to sort of lose sight of that distinction. Um, and this issue, I think, will, you know, while it, of course, causes shakiness, as we saw with Bitcoin and also Bitcoin and Ethereum all trading down dramatically earlier today. They've now stabilized because I yeah. think folks that knowledgeable about the ecosystem sort of under, start to understand that distinction. And ultimately, it may pave the way for, you know, for sort of a, a cleaner, better regulated uh, trading environment in crypto. 
At the same time, Lisa, it felt like this whole thing came about from a Twitter, a Twitter spat and CZ throwing cold water on what may or may not be FTX's finances. So if you're a retail investor and you're holding crypto, whatever kind of coins, how worried should you be? I mean, if FTX, one of the largest platforms in the world, the credibility, the liquidity of it was thrown into question leading to this in just a matter of days, what's your advice for retail investors? Yeah, for retail investors, I'd say you really want to make sure you're, you know, at an exchange that um, is holding very explicitly holding the customer funds uh, segregated and fully reserved, or, or, or really, ideally, even just fully in 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 cash or in treasuries or something like that, um, and also ideally an exchange that is perhaps not par- participating too heavily in the in the. Uh, lending side of the equation, right? What causes these liquidity crunches is when an exchange has a lot of lending activity going on, right? So you've got like a, a multiplier effect uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the ecosystem. So if you want to, if you still want to play crypto, but you're nervous as a consumer about the shakeout and whatever else we may see, that, that would probably be a, a strategy. You kind of move to something that, um, you know, may, maybe, you know, less, a little more traditional in that sense. Um, kind of an amazing assessment, Kate Rooney. I'm going to come back to you because it feels like a moving target for retail investors. They went off BlockFi to go to Celsius that was giving them um, yield, and then Celsius imploded. So maybe they went to FTX or maybe they went to Binance. It feels to me like if you're going with what Lisa says, you want to make sure that you're at an exchange that is fully backed, that is not participating too heavily in lending. That's Coinbase. Is Coinbase the winner from what's going on here? Um, could CZ inadvertently be pushing up another rival? Be boosting his U.S. Yeah. rival. That's a good question. I was looking at the stock price. The Coinbase was down significantly this morning. It looks like it recovered a little bit here, too. But it is one benefit of being regulated, being built in the U.S., and being a public company that they have to have those public audits. They have to have that information out there and that level of transparency. So investors and retail investors can go and look directly into what's happening under the hood at Coinbase, whereas they don't necessarily have that ability at FTX. Uh, one thing I want to bring up, as well in terms of FTX and what this means. The international business has been way more profitable because FTX has been able to do some of arguably the riskier trading strategies that are not approved yet in the, U- in the U.S. They don't do as much derivatives trading. FTX U.S., from what we've seen from the financials from at least 2021, FTX U.S. is by far the least profitable side of that business. So if that's what they're, they're holding on to here. It's a slower play, and they're going to have to really operate within the guardrails in the same way that Coinbase has. Right. Yeah, Kate, uh, I hear you. I want to bring Sam Lesson back into this, uh, if we still have him. What this raises for me, again, is a question of maybe it's not different this time, right? Maybe uh, crypto, at least in the near term, is not just this entirely different world of money. It's a risk asset, just like all kinds of risk assets. And in this case, we don't have a lot of visibility under the hood in various tokens and even various exchanges into exactly how this works. And even when it comes to Coinbase, yes, they're a public company. We can see what they're reporting, but the fluctuations in crypto overall and people's faith in individuals, in individual coins, and even the, the regulatory rules that come out as it applies to individual coins are going to have sometimes a very quick impact, Sam, won't they? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I would say two first, in terms of what you said, you know, one thing that wasn't mentioned, which is the most critical, is self-custody. 
if you go back to the inception of cryptocurrencies and the whole point, the whole point is to not need to rely on centralized parties or third-party exchanges. So look, if you're a long-term believer, as I am in Bitcoin and kind of the core, some of the core fundamentals of what's going on here, the real answer is don't rely on any exchanges. Self-custody your own coins, hope for the long term, accept the fact that there will be volatility because of the connection, and go on with your life. Um, you know, I think if you're going to hold something other than kind of the core key decentralized assets, you know, your, your point is well taken, which is some of these are really definitely risk assets, right? Um, and they're assets that, you know, kind of will move in various ways and get more complicated. So you should really need to know what you're investing in because there aren't guardrails. It's just like walking on a tightrope without a, you know, without a, without a safety. And, you know, look, I think crypto is a lot of things. It's not one single narrative. And I think you got to be really careful about things that for sure are more risk asset like versus things that are truly, you know, a different type of asset class. It shouldn't, as much as it's easy to group it all into one thing, because you can go to coin market cap and see, you know, a thousand different things. There's, you know, when you get into the nuance, there's dramatic differences between different parts of these things um, as you kind of look at it. Um, so I don't know, again, self-custody, take a long-term view, make sure you know what you're investing in is like the core of all of this, right? You know, you shouldn't leave your stuff on exchanges unless you really have, unless you really have a, a viewpoint, know what you're doing. Um, and then, you know, really make sure you understand the difference between what, you know, what risk, true risk assets are, of which there are many, right, versus, and they just are kind of like equities in a different form, no question, versus things that have kind of different properties. Lisa, I'm, I'm curious, given how easy it appears to be to engineer a run on one of your biggest rivals and then offer to buy them at a discount, does that make you uneasy about covering the space overall? <laughs> well, um, it it definite. I mean, it, it certainly is. You know, we're a volatile and risky environment. That's for sure. Um, very unpredictable in that way. It takes a strong stomach to be focused in this space. It's also a reason why I personally like to and focus a lot on the the businesses that are really focused on the infrastructure aspects of crypto more than these exchanges themselves. So meaning this in addition to a company like Coinbase would be companies like Circle, et cetera, Paxos, you know, some of those firms that, mm-hmm. um, you know, Signature Bank um, uh, that are you know, building, if they're maybe less sort of uh, sexy day to day, but they're building a lot of the kind of plumbing infrastructure, sort of doing the picks and shovels. We got to leave it there uh, for this conversation. Thank you. And I would point out this happened with Bitcoin holding steady uh, lately at around 20K. So who knows what happens from here? Thank you, Sam Lesson, Lisa, our own Kate Rooney. More on this story after the break, plus highlights from my exclusive conversation with the chairwoman of the FCC is next. Tech Check is back in a moment. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I am live at the Paley International Council Summit at the Paley Center for Media. Right before the show this morning, I spoke with FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel about the regulatory future of social platforms and big media mergers. 
the richest man in the world last month bought one of the major uh, social networks, yesterday made a recommendation about which party people should vote for, and the ascendant social network in this country, TikTok, is owned by a Chinese company. There are questions about where the data goes. Now, I know this isn't technically under the FCC's purview, but should it be? Whoa, you went right there. <laughs> you get out of the way. Um, well, first of all, vote like it matters I did. because it does. Yeah, Good. I did. Um, and second, you're absolutely right. That stuff is not under my jurisdiction. And uh, I uh, want to be cautious because it's Congress who gets to decide what's my authority and what's outside of it. But you really do touch on something there, which is that the universe we think of as media is changing so fast, and our laws simply don't keep up. And I think that's challenging for regulators. I think it's challenging for industry. And I think it's challenging for consumers. And we are going to have to modernize our frameworks for all of these things over time. And certainly at the FCC, we'll be willing to offer thoughts as Congress tries to evolve those laws. But we're not quite there yet. Let's talk about M&A. You've got you know, lots of people poking you on the shoulder saying, do this, don't do that. right? Uh, and when it comes to local television, you know, specifically the former Gannett stations are now uh, very much in play. There are questions about how that's going to go. Does it make sense to you know, look at innovation happening quickly in areas like 5G, like Twitter, like TikTok, and say, maybe we should you know, let these companies bulk up and compete? Or do you say, no? So, and you knew this was coming, I can't talk about transactions that are presently before okay. the agency. Just, you know, generally. <laughs> All right, that let's, one let's take it up a level. Just, you sure. know, generally. Um, I think that's a reasonable question to ask. I think one of the challenges for an agency like mine is some of my laws have a sort of vintage quality to it, that when I assess transactions involving broadcast airwaves, I'm largely looking at the Communications Act of 1934. <laughs> when I think about cable television and channels. That's the Cable Television Act of 1984. And sometimes, if you're getting modern, the act from 1992. Oh, 92. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the bulk of our telecommunications framework is from 1996. And you know, in 1996, I had an AOL account. I thought I was really cool for having it. You were in 96, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. But, um, but things are changing now. And I think the challenge is that our laws, again, don't always keep up. But what you do as a regulator is you try to look at those laws and identify what are the values that are in them that apply to this moment. We also talked about rural broadband and 5G sort of access and how that's important to the overall economy and how COVID showed that. Um, but there's a lot on Congress now to get done, uh, Dee, that, that she talked about. Uh, also, I would point out, she said she was able to get things done with a gridlock FCC, so she, she has hope for whatever happens with Congress. Fascinating conversation and, you know, kind of relevant to our breaking crypto story this hour, too, as this industry tries to figure out how to regulate or not regulate itself. What she says, Carl, is that facts and laws don't always keep up as a regulator. Uh, she just has to look at the laws and identify the value. So no small task. And, John, I like that you went right for it, asked her the hard question right away, as I would expect, no less. 
Yeah, great stuff, John. That's um, fascinating. And, of course, ties right into uh, the election cycle that we're right in the middle of. Overall, even though we got caught with that breaking news regarding crypto, it has been a pretty good session. We got to 3860. That's close to a one-week closing high. Ten-year, uh, Treasuries are getting bought a bit. We're below 414. Busy night tonight, of course, with the midterm election results. And, of course, we'll look at Disney, IAC, Oxy, and Affirm. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.